Today's episode is brought to you by Lee School Supplies Corporation. Lee School Supplies provides all your student testing needs, as well as custom pens, pencils, and administrative products, offering same-day shipping and guaranteed fast response with excellent customer service. If you're a school administrator in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex region, check out Lee School Supplies fundraising programs, which require no cost to schools, no teacher or administrative time, no annoying catalogs to send home to parents. The cost to start your fundraising with Lee School Supplies absolutely free. Lee School Supplies provides the fundraising and your school receives the commissions. It's literally free money for your school. Why wait? Call them today. Lee School Supplies products are made in the USA and Lee School Supplies is a veteran-owned company. LeeSchoolSupplies.com, a wise choice since 1978. I'm Spencer Robinson your host of Distinguished Grit, where we have conversations with people who have grit. My guest today is Brett Matt Moore. He goes by Matt. Good morning. How's it going? Good, buddy. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, Everett. I mean, I was born in Illinois. Lived there uh, just for about two years and then ended up moving to Arizona after my dad passed and I uh, came up to Washington when I was about five years old. How old were you when your dad passed? Uh, just under about 18 months, just under two years old. How did he die? Uh, he killed himself. He made a suicide in our garage. When you were 18 months? Yeah, just a little guy. Wow. Yeah. So how was growing up? How did that impact you? Uh, it, was, it, it changed the course, that's for sure. Definitely changed the course of our lives. Uh, I'd say not for the better. Created a big divide. Uh, my mom was from a small town. My dad was from the same small town in Illinois. And uh, you know, when my dad killed himself, it caused a lot of rift between the two families. So um, ended up being a thing, a situation where family from my entire dad's side of the family wanted nothing to do with us. I wanted nothing to do with me and my older brother. Um, blamed my mom for his suicide and just created a bunch of drama within the family. So my grandpa from my mother's side moved us away to Arizona to get us away from the situation and uh, kind of changed the whole course of our childhood. My mom kind of chose a couple of poor guys after that that were not very good men. Uh, we ended up coming up to Washington with one that was a drywaller. Um, somehow got a job up here, brought us up here, but grew up in Section 8 housing, welfare, food stamps, getting evicted constantly, moving from apartment complex to apartment complex. Um, basically grew up my entire childhood, never met anybody from my dad's side of the family and my uncles, aunts, cousins, grandparents, anybody on that side of the family. So his decision definitely, uh, changed the entire trajectory of our childhood for sure. Um, and I would say not in a good way, but it is what it is kind of thing that led us on the journey of life, I guess. So moving around low income, yep. a lot of instability. Yep. Uh, then what, what, what made those guys not good guys? Um, those guys not good guys. Well, my first, the first one, my mom married a guy named John was little, I have very vague few memories. One of the last memories I remember, uh, was him smashing my mom in the face with a vase and cutting her face open, knocking her unconscious. My older brother called the police probably four and six. It's probably one of the very few memories I have of him. Uh, and getting taken to the hospital. That was kind of the last thing I remember him. I think they split after that. Um, and the guy that she remarried 
After that, the one that was a drywall that brought us up here. I mean, he was just an alcoholic in and out of AA, in and out of NA. I think very verbally and physically abusive at sometimes. Just uh, kids, not so much to my mom. Um, when I was about 11 years old, my mom got sick with multiple sclerosis, ended up in a wheelchair. Uh, so as soon as she goes sick and in a wheelchair, it was very fast and a very rare case of progressive MS, which put her into a wheelchair uh, within probably six months of her getting sick. Uh, so then he had cheated on her and left her. So basically at that point, it was me and my oldest brother, we were probably 11 and 13 at the time, uh, left to kind of take care of my mom and my two younger brothers. And it was quite a few years before she got full state assistance to help with her sickness. So it was a lot of childhood of us, you know, giving mom a shower, bathing mom, changing her, doing all those kind of things. So and they were both just kind of dirtbag dudes. I think my mom had a tough life and mom just chose some poor men and made bad decisions after my dad died. And I think it just, she was probably wrecked from it and just continued to choose badly. So you're entering your high school years. Mm -hmm. Did you have any, any positive male role models in your life? Um, you know, it's so funny. I was just thinking about this the other day. I was like, no, not really. But it's so funny how much somebody can make an impact. I remember being like in the first grade and having a male teacher that was just such a good male teacher. I don't remember his name to this name, but I just remember how that guy, the emotion he had on the, like the impact he had on me. I remember being in first grade. I mean, so attached to the fact that I had this good, positive male. I remember when school was over, just bawling and crying that I wasn't going to see this guy again. Right. So I don't think I really did. I think when I got to high school, um, I mean, I played sports, so I had a few coaches that were, were good. Sports was kind of my outlet to think. Playing football um, was kind of my big outlet to get away from stuff that was going on. At the time, I, I kind of got involved with youth group and started going to church, just trying to find things that were an outlet from what was going on in my childhood and the way that things were. So I would say sports was probably the biggest thing for me that kind of started changing things for me and the trajectory of which way I was going to go. Yeah. How were your coaches? Uh, they were tough. I had one name. Coach Terry Ennis out of Cascade High School in Everett. Uh, I think we won nine or 10 Wesco championships. Uh, he was just hard and very firm, but in a way that I don't know, got, got people motivated, got people driven. He was a great coach. Um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say I ever, like coaches, I had this huge personal impact, Like, on, but on the field, I, mean, I had a lot of respect for them, but they definitely drove me and pushed me to be better at sports. Um, so with that, then my senior year, I got a scholarship to go play at a college prep school in Minnesota called Hillcrest Lutheran Academy. Yeah. So I got a scholarship to go out there and play football. So that was like, for me, that was probably one of the best years of my life. I went, got to leave, got away from all this. Uh, you know, at the time we were living in a Section 8 apartment in Everett, Washington. You know, four boys crammed into a little apartment mm. living on Section 8 and welfare. Um, so I got the scholarship to go out there where it was room and board. Went out to uh, Fergus Falls, Minnesota. It was like my first taste of getting out of like the big city or getting out of kind of like the West coast and going to the Midwest Yeah, and got to go down there and got room and board all nine yards and just kind of got to have a fresh start to life. I apparently, you know, essentially have a fresh start to life and went out there to play football, um, was able to make it, made the all conference and the all state team. It was like one of the only two or three guys in the history of the school that made all state, you know, so it was a really cool experience overall made friends there that I'll be friends with forever. Um, but just that outlet, like that getting away from the chaos of what my childhood had been and just having like my own sense of freedom. And it was, I think it was probably the first year I had actual like peace in my life or it was like just peace. I wasn't involved in all the crap that was going on with my family and my mom being sick and all that stuff. And so it kind of showed me that there was a different, you know, there's other stuff out there besides just the chaos that I had of my childhood. So, so it was a cool, cool experience. Felt some relief. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. 
Yeah. <clears throat> What'd you do after college? Uh, so after college, I came back home for just a little bit. Or well, it wasn't college. It was high school. It was my mm. senior year of high school that I went out there. High school. Um, so when I graduated from there, I came back home for a little bit. I uh, met my first wife. Um, we got engaged really quickly. And then I decided one day I went with a buddy. He was actually signing up for the Air Force. And I just went down with him so he could sign in some paperwork with the Air Force and stand outside of a recruiter station waiting for him to sign paperwork. And out comes some recruiter and Hey, you look like a big guy. You look like you're an athlete. Hey, you want to you want to join the arm? Oh no 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 no! My buddy's joining the air force. I'm just here. I didn't even know what the I didn't know anything. I didn't know what the infantry was. I didn't know anything at all. No, I I knew nothing about the military other than that my buddy was signing up. I had a decent little job. I was working at a bank. I was like 18 working at a bank. Um, so he comes out and oh, you guys want to be pussies? You guys want to carry briefcases to 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 your PT in the morning in the air force and da da da. And, you two want to be killers? Come in here and brought us inside and made us watch some army ranger video of guys popping out of the water with guns in their hands. And uh, about 40 minutes later, he wasn't going to the air force anymore. We both signed up for the army buddy program and uh, we both joined the army, came home literally like two hours after I went with them and told my mom, Hey, uh, I was signing for the army and I leave in four days. So that's how that went down. Next thing I know, I had no clue what the infantry was. I knew nothing about the military at all. Joined oh. up for the infantry and there I go. How old were you? Uh, just turning 19. Just turned 19. Yeah. Okay. I had no idea. Yep. <laughs> Where'd you go to basic? Uh, I went down to Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, that's where all the infantry guys go. So I went down to basic in Fort Benning, Georgia. Home of wayward boys. Yeah. Yeah. Went down to Fort Benning, Georgia, which that was a culture shock for me to go down there and see that side of the world. Uh, you know, just the mix of everybody, you know, the infantry is pretty much, I'd say your your poor kids of the entire country all brought together. It's, it's a mixture of maybe a few few people that were just hardcore and wanted to be in the infantry, and then it's a mixture of just a lot of poor kids that all got brought together, and that's where we ended up. What year is this? Uh, that would be two thousand and one. So yeah, pre nine eleven. Pre nine eleven and basic training. Final week wow. of final week of our basic training exercise. We were finishing up our last week out in the field. Nine uh, eleven happened. Didn't even know. I mean, at that age, you don't even know what the tra World Trade Center is, right? And right. what the Twin Towers was. Uh, they pulled us all into a, a meeting and get you know had us all come in and take an e and asked everybody. Anybody here got family that works at the World Trade Center? And a couple of guys raised their hands and they grabbed those guys and escorted them off. And then they just told us that, uh, that America was under attack and we got a couple of planes flown into the World Trade Center and we better start taking stuff serious because we're going to be going to war. So wow, yeah. Did you deploy? Uh, yeah, I actually didn't employ, I didn't go to Afghanistan. So, you know, right after that, Afghanistan war started shortly after that. I came to Fort Lewis, Washington, um, was with the 520 infantry and we were the first striker brigade. So we we're the first unit in the, in the army to get the strikers. Um, so when we got those striker vehicles, we had a lot of like training and field exercising. Basically our unit was riding kind of like the whole entire like biography of how the strikers was going to work and the whole, basically like the field manual of how that was going to work. Um, so we were kind of missed the Afghanistan deployments because we were getting that all trained up. And so, but then we were the first, one of the first striking units to get deployed to Iraq for the Iraq war in 2003. Were you married at the time? Yeah. So married. How did, how did your wife deal with that at the time? Uh, you know, it was tough. I had, uh, initially signed up for a three year contract. <clears throat> and so when we got our orders to deploy, uh, you know, we got orders to deploy. So we're going to be leaving in like four months or whatever. So took that time to get, you know, get my wife out of our apartment and send her back to go live with some family in Minnesota. Uh, so she went back there shortly after, you know, shortly before we we're supposed to deploy. And then that got delayed in like another month or two months. So there's a couple months of delay, but my initial contract was saying basically that I would go to Iraq and spend maybe three or four months in Iraq. 
um, and then I would be coming back. However, as soon as I deployed, as soon as we landed, the day we landed in Kuwait, they pulled everybody who was supposed to be getting out that year in and said, hey, you've now all officially been stop lost. For those of you who don't know, it means that you are involuntarily extended for another year. So my contract got extended for another year. So then we stay. So I had to stay uh, the whole full year there in Iraq. So, surprise. Yeah, surprise. So that was how the Army. And they knew. They, they knew before we left that that was going to happen. Uh, they had kind of basically told everybody, no, 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 it's not going to, you're going to go for your three months, or you're going to go for your four months. Don't worry. I think because they were fearing that people would quit or go AWOL or take off or do whatever or wouldn't want to deploy or be scared or whatever it was. They knew the second that we landed that we were none of us were coming back until the deployment was over. So as soon as we got back, that was it. They, or as soon as we landed, that was it. They just pulled us all said, hey, sorry, you've all been needs of the Army, stop loss. You're not going anywhere. So that's the failure, which in hindsight, I mean, at the time, you're obviously super pissed off and and angry about it, but then as you know, our deployment in the in, in the war progressed, I obviously wouldn't have wanted to come back and leave my guys there. Um, it would have been I don't think I would have been able to handle that. So I actually am thankful that we stayed the whole year and got stop lost, you know, essentially. It was a pretty tight unit. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, we had a really tight unit. Um yeah, we had a tight unit. It was a weird thing because we had um we had some really awesome, awesome leaders that were with the unit the entire time training up before we left. Uh, we had a captain at the time who was just just a freaking badass and was just a, an amazing leader. Uh, a couple of platoon sergeants and PLs that were awesome leaders. But then what happened was right before we deployed, somehow the Army thought that they would make they would be better because they had just done all this training on the strikers that they needed to go to Washington, D.C. and be working in D.C. or working in other units and not going on deployment with this unit. So right before we left, we had a big change of leadership, which was kind of a weird you know, thing for deploying. Because we had all this camaraderie and all this like years and years worth of of training together, and then all of a sudden we leave, and it's like, oh, we got a new captain. Stripped away. Yeah, he, he got a new captain, and the captain we had at the mm-hmm. time for the initial first two months of appointment was uh, like like a character from a movie. He was just so messed up and and ate up. He actually ended up getting relieved of, of duty two months into deployment. They pulled us right out of the. We were fighting in the city of Samara, and they basically pulled us to two three hundred yards outside the city. So some engineers had built up a berm and flew in some chow, had us all for chow, had a formation, did a, a change of command ceremony right there, relieved them of duty on the spot and brought us in a new a new captain. Um, but I do think, however, that that was, I'm not like a super religious guy, but it was definitely God's intervention because we you know the captain we had at the time, uh, I mean, he was just was ate up. Is that still working? Yeah. yeah he he was just ate up. I mean, we're just doing stuff that was putting guys at risk, putting soldiers at risk, making poor decisions, poor battlefield decisions, had no tactical ability. Um, we were feeling pretty bleak about about our leadership that we had going on there. And, uh, you know, it was undermining his, his lieutenants in front of him, in front of his soldiers, you know, calling them out on the radio. Uh, I remember we had a, we were going to assist another platoon that was in contact <clears throat> on a mission. We took like sporadic gunfire. It was, I mean, it wasn't even close. It was shot way over our head. Um, and he diverts the entire mission, which we were basically a quick reaction force to go help these other people in contact. And, Hey, I don't want, there's a bell fed machine gun in that factory over there. I want to go find it and has us go do a full raid on some factory while the, the unit that was in contact that we're supposed to be going out the back up is left, you know, by themselves while we're off searching around for some AK 47 or whatever, you know, some stupid. So I think we were all like, Holy shit, this is the real deal. And we're like, this is this is bad. Like we got, we're in a bad spot. Luckily, uh, I'm sure some of the other leaders in the in the unit spoke up and somehow got got us a new, you know, got got the change of command that happened and got a new captain. And the captain we had that came in, he was a uh, real small guy named Matthew Dabkowski, real tiny guy, um, but just a freaking. He's a West Point guy, West Point grad, just a tactical tactical genius, and 
just carried himself with a poise of just strength and freaking honor and ability. And he was real big. I, I distinctly remember him pulling us all aside when he first got there and just saying like, listen guys, like, I know it's weird. Cause you know, in the infantry at that age, we're all like, like I was a, a squad leader. I was a young squad leader. I was a corporal. When I first got there, my, my uh, squad leader, his family had an emergency. He had to leave after like a month on deployment. But in the position I was in, the kind of leader I was, they they, up, they promoted me to sergeant, and then I stayed as a squad leader, which is typically an E6 position. But I ran as a as an E4 and corporal, and then up to an E5. I ran the entire year as a squad leader for my squad. Um, so when you're that age, you're I mean, you're still in like 19, 20, 21 year. I mean, I think I was 20 at the time. I turned yeah. 21, turned 21 halfway through the deployment. Um, but then I think about Matt Dabakowski, the captain that came in. It's probably like 29, 30, but 29, 30 in the infantry, that's like your dad. You know, you're like, oh, that's really old. He's an old Senior. guy, you know, and he's just a leader. So it's funny now as I'm older, I look back and I'm like, man, that guy, you know, he really had this like father figure thing, but he really was only like seven or eight years old. He was still probably not even a 30 year old man at the time. Um, but he just had so much wisdom. I remember pulling us all aside and I'm mean, like, listen, guys, like we're beginning of this war. Um, there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of, and there's units out there that, you know, we're in contact and, you know, making, probably making some poor decisions. Some people that were getting shot that shouldn't have got shot. Things that happened out there on the battlefield. And I just remember him distinctly saying, I will back and support you in that set, in that, in whatever decisions you make, if you think it's the right thing and it's what you had to do. And he's like, but there's a lot of gray area on whether or not you can shoot in a certain situation or shoot somebody or do how you should react. And he's like, but just remember that when this war is over and it will be over and we'll go home, you're going to have to live with whatever decisions you made here on the battlefield for the rest of your life. So make the right ones and make sure. And I just think that that really echoed to a lot of guys in our unit, you know, our battalion, there's other companies that we're in the alpha, alpha company. There's other companies that were getting themselves into more skirmishes and getting themselves into more trouble and losing more people and just more stuff. And I felt like it was from his leadership and his style of leadership that he had towards us, the way he was that, that echoed with everybody. Everybody kind of knew like, Hey, let's make the right decisions, do the right things, try to treat people with respect and do whatever we could, you know? And so, um, yeah, so then that was it. He came in December and then we kind of went from there on our, the rest of our deployment with him. How'd the rest of your deployment go? Uh, it was good. I mean, was, there was, there was a few things that we had pretty bad. Um, you know, we had a few instances that was coming, you know, in our, in our battalion, some guys that drowned in a striker, um, that died. We had a few other guys that were killed. Um, they roll over in a river or what? Yeah, they actually were going across a bridge and a bridge collapsed. Mm. Um, and they, they were stuck inside the vehicle, couldn't get out. And three of them passed away um, from drowning. Yeah. So that was in like November-ish of, of the deployment. Uh, and then in December, we had kind of the same thing, a rollover accident. That was the one I think you know about with the, where I got the soldier's medal from it flipping upside down and going to the river there and saving yeah. those guys. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah. So we were, we did a mission and we were outside of Samara, Iraq. Uh, a lot of people don't, don't realize that there is... Uh, quite a bit, there's quite a bit of weather in Iraq. A lot of people don't realize that we did, they do have a full four seasons. I mean, when Northern Iraq, we get, we had snow, we had rain, we had all of it, you know, all of it. And summer's obviously, you know, the heat like nowhere else. But, um, yeah, we were on a mission and, uh, there was a couple of strikers that had gone across the bridge. Now, mind you, just three or four weeks prior, those other guys from our unit had drowned and died. So everybody was very weary about crossing bridges and stuff. And so the first couple of units were coming back from doing a raid and doing a mission. I think it was called Ivy. Operation Ivy Blizzard, I think it was called. But we were coming back from doing a mission and a few of the vehicles were crossing a bridge and it started kind of deteriorating. So the company commander, the new company commander we have, halted the rest of the unit and basically said, we need to find an alternate route. Um, you guys need to find a different way around, you know, around this bridge or whatever. So 
somebody had found an alternate route that would bring us around and bring us up on the levee up on the up on the you know the embankment of the river on a road and parallel around and be able to cross farther down so i was the third vehicle uh, in that movement so the first vehicle had gone up the hill and took in a left-hand turn making a real tight tight turn on the embankment of the river to like the basically like a dike road um, took a left on it and they made it. it was very tight the second vehicle was going and i was a third vehicle back uh, as the second vehicle had gone up and made the turn the embankment gave way and it flipped um, so when that vehicle flipped that was the battalion xo's vehicle he was in it he was actually ejected and thrown from the vehicle into the river then the vehicle flipped over came down on top of him by the grace of God, pushed him down into the muck and shot him out the side. Uh, wow. Yeah, he made it out without any injuries. Wow. Yeah, but the the other the vehicle had flipped upside down. So in a striker vehicle, you have hatches on the top that people can stand out of. However, when it flipped and went down, all those hatches were basically stuck in the butt upside down. Right. So the only exit they would have had would be the rear exit of the vehicle. So at the time, there was me and another guy named Sergeant Rose. We had jumped in, was able to get the back door, pry it open underwater, get it open, um, swam in. There was five guys in there. I think we got the first three or four guys, you know, made one trip in, started, started guiding guys out. You know, it was feeling at this point, it was almost completely filled with water. Got the first, um, first three, four guys out and got them up above water and got them to the shore, went back in. Um, and the driver was kind of stuck in his, in his driver's seat. So in a striker, when you come in, there's like seating on the backside. There's a little narrow chute called the, like the hell hole that you have to climb through and get into the driver's seat um, if you didn't access it from the outside, which now he can't access from that. You know, he can't access from the outside because it's upside down. Right. Uh, so I had to go swim through the hell hole, basically help the driver get out of his seatbelt, get him out, pull him out the back and got him out of the back of the vehicle and everybody survived. When so. you go into the water, do you ditch your weapons and gear? Uh, I still have my vest on. So your vest I still on. have my, I still have my vest on. I mean, just out of initial, yeah. just initial reaction of, um, you know, just, panic of i mean i've been in the water with weapons and gear before and it's not fun no no i mean i think i think the initial the initial running up i remember i remember tossing my rifle to the side and just diving in yeah um trying to go down as the vehicle was going down right and i think once we got the door and got the first couple i think i had you know maybe ripped it off and tossed it off to somebody to go back in for the driver um yeah so then we got that stuff out and the, the funny part about that whole story was so now this vehicle is upside down underwater. Well, they're not. We're not just going to leave it, right? They can't just leave this multi-million dollar vehicle at the bottom of the rock, at the bottom of the river. So, you know, they bring a bunch of, you know, I think the rest of the company came, the rest of the battalion came. We had a bunch of security come in. So now we had to have like wreckers come in and had to have, you know, like wreckers come in to salvage this and get it out of the water. So it was now an, a whole overnight ordeal of, you know getting security set up, getting, getting everybody, you know, dried. And also, so, you know, we got blankets and we're shivering and we're drying up and, you know, everybody's giving the attaboys, which at the point, I mean, reality, I'm you're just happy that everybody survived and it's not about the attaboys. So I remember the battalion commander came flying in on a helicopter, right? And everybody, he lands and out in this field next to it and it's dark and just getting dry. And everybody's like, Hey, Sergeant Moore, the battalion commander wants to see you. Like man, so everybody's like, "Oh, you're gonna go get out of boys," you know. So, you know, you're young, twenty, like, "Oh yeah, oh, cool, I'm the cool guy now, right?" Oh, okay, so I go running over there, all excited, you know, like, "Hey, sir, how can I?" You know, he's like, "Oh, you know, great job today, sir, more great job." You did kick ass, and like, "What?" Uh? He's like, "So, but here's the situation. Um, since we know you can swim and you can handle the cold water, there's some things that floated up, some sensitive items that were floating around on the banks of the river and stuff. So we're, we're gonna tie a rope to you. We're gonna just throw you back in." <laughs> To go back in the water and start retrieving items. So here I am. They put a rope around my waist and I got to jump back in this ice cold water. 
swimming around in the middle of the night, them holding flashlight. Oh, over there. Oh, I see this. I remember distinctly somebody had a mug, a coffee mug, and it was like floated up against the bank somewhere. And they're like, grab my mug. And I'm like, go get fucked, dude. Like, get out of here. So, yeah. But, yeah, so then we got everybody out. And then it was wild. You know, we freaking... They got the striker out of the out of the thing in the middle of the night, and you know, wow. uh, basically freaking, all right, go right back, and we went right back. I think we went straight from there right into another mission, and didn't even go back to the base. Like just went right back into another mission. By the time it was said and done, so um, yeah, so that was a big that that was a big part of that one. Um, and I think you know, you know, the, the first six or seven or eight months of that deployment was actually a lot of fun. I, I think most of our engagements that we ever had, if there was any kind of an engagement, um, you know, was you know. It, exchanging of gunfire and that kind of stuff. And it wasn't a serious. It was, we started having small IEDs, you know, here and there, you'd have one, you know, one, 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 five, five more around or something, or you know, some kind of small, but by the time we got towards the last three or four months of our point, we started hitting some really big IEDs and that kind of changed the game for us. It was no longer fun. You know, it was, we we're going on patrol. And before you go on patrol, you're going out and hoping to get into a skirmish, you know, maybe getting into a firefight or something like that. Now, when we were going, it was, you know, when we first started riding on that deployment, everybody's standing out of the hatches this high exposed. And by the end, you got your this much of your head, you know, just your your eyes sticking out of the hatch because you're just worried about the bombs and stuff. So I, I think we were probably maybe our last month we were in Missoula or last month, last month of, de- of deployment in Missoula. And my vehicle had a, a large v- vehicle borne ID on the side of the road. Um, had kind of blown out the undercarriage of the striker, threw his nose down into a ditch. I had actually been up in the air century hatch all day pulling security out there, century hatch. And um at right just maybe twenty minutes before that, and you know, another person in the platoon was, Hey, switch out with me, Sergeant Moore. Hey, let me get up there, let me stretch my legs out. So I just came down and sat on the floor, actually between the two benches of the soldiers and sat on the floor. I remember laying back against my assault pack, like taking a break because I've been up in that air century hatch for four or five hours or whatever. And boom, we hit this freaking thing and just nose dived us right into a ditch. Freaking the whole, you know, the whole vehicle got engulfed with flames. Uh, we had all the, you know, a lot of guys had their rucksacks and we had MRE boxes and water things, and all that stuff strapped to the outside. All that stuff caught on fire. The rest of our platoon had kind of circled around us to pull security or whatever. Um, and I remember us all freaking out because the strikers have what's called a halon system, which is like it sucks the oxygen out in case there's a fire inside the vehicle, right? So it was picking up all the smoke that was coming in. But none of us, we'd all been trained on it. None of us actually heard it. So it starts going off in this loud hiss and everybody, we have AT4 rockets in there. So it starts hissing. We're all freaking out thinking that, that the, somehow these rockets are going, you know, we're kicking the door, trying to get the door because the electronics and hydraulics are out to the vehicle now. So finally get the back thing out. I mean, a couple of the guys that were in the air century hatch, fortunately, I mean, they had got some big flash burns on their face and their hands. One of the guys had passed out and got knocked out and fell down on top of me. One of the guys, you know, they're screaming their face and their hands were burnt. Um, so we, we get out, we start coming out and I remember coming out of the door and like K-pods sitting sideways, just bell rung, ringing, freaking just blasted. Like what the hell just happened? And looking down at the end of the road, there's probably a hundred Iraqis down at the end of the road, waving their shirts around the top of their heads, swinging them and yelling and celebrating and just cheering that that had just happened. And I remember thinking, man, I just want to open up, like open fire on all you guys, you know, obviously we didn't, but would have been a lot cooler for us back then, you know. Yeah. When you when you get rocked like emotional that, emotional moment. Yeah, they just try to kill you, you know. Now they're 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 waving shirts with their heads celebrating that they just try to kill you, you know. So then we we were on that. We we had to sit there basically wait for a medevac to come get the guys that got had got hurt, and the same thing had to get a record crew to come out there to get the striker loaded up on the thing, and and then we probably spent two or three hours. You know, we're probably 20, 30 minutes into that. We started catching mortar rounds and some sporadic gunfire at us. They started shooting at because we're exposed, you know. We're sitting out there exposed. Uh, so a couple little skirmishes there waiting, waiting to get out of there. And then we got out of there. Um, so that was a big one. And then 
Yeah, then we had a, a, an incident where the big thing I think of that whole deployment that kind of messed everybody up is we had a um, a big incident where a, a bus full of girls got caught in the middle of, an, of a firefight between us and a big, it was a big, huge raid that we were going to do on the Mahdi militia. I don't know if you remember them, but it was uh, Zarqawi and the Mahdi militia. Well, those guys that had gone into Al-Kut, Talafar area, um, and, or down in, not Talafar, down in Al-Kut, close to Fallujah. They got in and taken over like a new Iraqi or Iraqi um, National Guard building. So it was like the new National Guard that we helped train as Americans helped train. And they got in there, killed a bunch of them, hung them from bridges, and basically like raised their flag. And so that was their headquarters now. And um, so we had to go and do a raid on that. And long story short, it just turned into an, uh, an automatic gunfight as soon as we got there. Grenades are going, you know, 50 cals, everything. And uh, there was a bus full of girls that were stuck in a traffic circle that their dad, you know, we obviously don't know who they are, what's going on. They, you know, we blocked off this whole traffic circle in the middle of a firefight. The guy had come flying around the father. He's in a panic trying to get out of there. He comes flying around the traffic circle. You know, soldiers are trying to tell him to stop. And they're raising the rifle at him to stop. And he's still not stopping. You know, you don't know. It's just a, a vehicle borne ID coming at us. What is going on here? So, the militia, you know, you yeah, you know, we had no bus. clue, no clue what's going on there at all. You know, it's chaos. It's a full fledged firefight. Um, and the kid, you know, that, that, that fired first, he made the right decision. He raised his rifle and he, you know, he told the guy to stop and he gave him the command to stop and the hand to stop and raised his rifle on the stop. And then he continued to come straight at us. And so when he was coming at us, the kid fired a couple rounds and, and killed the, killed the driver. But at that time, uh, there was a, there was another person from another unit that was with us who he saw the, the, the soldier shooting at the father. So he opened up and engaged and started shooting through the side of, the, of this bus. He clearly he doesn't know what's in it. So he's dumping a mag into the bus. Well, at the same time he's doing it, the rounds are coming through the bus and coming out the other side of the bus. And at the same time, one of our other squads had just dropped their ramp to go in and raid this building. So from their perspective, they are getting out of their vehicle and there's this bus to the right that's just, and rounds are coming out of it at them. So they are thinking that they're being ambushed from this bus. So they return fire um, and shoot a bunch. And so at that point I had already jumped over a wall to see cover because the rounds coming from our own guys from the other side were smacking all around us. So when I had popped up to get myself in a position that I was going to fire at that point, I was at Isla I could see into this bus and see that it was a bunch of, a bunch of girls. Um, so I'm yelling, cease fire, cease fire, jumping over the wall, kicking everybody that's down on the ground, shooting, trying to stop everybody from shooting and stuff. And uh, yeah, so then at that time, our medic was home on his R&R um, and I had gone through prior to leaving on deployment. They took one guy from each platoon and sent us through uh, EMT school at Pierce Community College so that we could have somebody else that was just a little more advanced and just like basic combat medic stuff. And so there was a battalion medic and me and they were like, all right, you know, more get in there um go in there start working on these girls see what we can see who we can save you know i think um if i remember right there was 10 10 girls in there and their father the father obviously he didn't make it uh out of the 10 i think six were killed mm. and the other four we worked on vigorously for quite a while to save um we're able to save four of them but it was uh i think that was the most defining point in the war and for me it was that i was a leader i was 21 and i had had um a young kid who came to me halfway through deployment. And so he was only you know, 18 years old, graduated high school, went to basic, came right from basic, right to right to Iraq. So we, he came in once we were already six months into this deployment. And I remember getting that bus and just being, I'm covered from head to toe in blood. Um, you know, probably one of the worst things you'll ever see in your life, right? A bunch of kid girls, 12, 13, 14 year old girls. Right. And, um, I remember picking up a girl who could have been maybe 14, 
when their life is about it and looking over and, you know, I, you know, I told my soldiers, they got to come with me, you know, like I need to get, get in here and start assisting me. And I remember grabbing this little girl and I'm going to hand her to this kid who was 18 mm. and uh, <clears throat> the wow. look in his face of like, please don't like, he didn't, ah, it's hard. It choked me up. But um, yeah. the look in his face of please don't, don't make me do this. Right. Um, I happened to hand that little girl to him and just like, uh, seeing his innocence be taken from right there, even though, I mean, at the time I was only probably 21 years old myself. Right. Yeah. So that was, uh, probably the worst day, the worst day of the war for all of us. I think, um, it was a tragedy, something that really couldn't have been avoided after the fact, you know, there was a lot of riff in the company of how the whole thing took place. Cause everybody had a different perspective. Yeah. Right. Um, cause it was a chaotic moment and it was this chaos of the war and it was a, everybody had a different, some people thought people were shooting just to shoot. Some people, you know, they, they thought that somebody should, the first guy should have never shot. Some people didn't see his perspective. It was just the whole way it all went around. Um, and in hindsight, everybody sees things. Yeah. In hindsight, everybody was sees in the moment. Yeah. Everybody sees things different than it was in the mm -hmm. moment. And the reality of it was, is, it was just a situation that couldn't really, the way it all went down, the way, the way the father, you know, avoided the commands to stop in the midst of a firefight, in the midst of a big firefight and a raid and all the stuff going on. I mean, it just was something that happened and it couldn't really be avoided. I guess the, the plus side, I mean, there was, I mean, 50 cal machine guns that ripped through that. There was guys that shot with 50 cals through that bus. There was two forties and saw machine guns that shot. There's probably 500 rounds dumped into that bus. And the fact that four girls made it, survived at all was pretty pretty wild so yeah yeah so that was right towards the end of deployment and it was one of those crazy things of everybody kind of made it through we had made it through that point with nothing that was super detrimental i felt like um and i think too there's something about um when you're there there's a mindset when it comes to other soldiers and, and i think obviously it's hard to see other soldiers pass and nobody wants to do it, but you do have this mindset of like that's you kind of understand that's part of it and could happen but I think in that situation for us, the fact that it was all just a bunch of young girls um, and it had happened, I think that's what tore everybody up because you're just not prepared for mentally prepared to see that or be a part of that and don't think that that's, that's going to happen. So that was probably the most defining day of the war of bad shit. Now, there's a lot of good shit, too. You know, there's a lot of fun stuff on deployment. You build a camaraderie and brotherhood that is hard to explain to anybody. Um, here I'm you know, over 20 years later, still just as close with almost all those guys. You know, we do reunions, we meet up, I can go anywhere, almost any state and have a brother somewhere, you know, link up and, oh, hey, I'm in Vegas. Oh, hey, so am I, you know, guys come in and we're still close to this day. So, yeah. So that was that. Did you get leave while you're yeah. You there? Yeah, I got two weeks. So you get to come back to the U.S. Yeah. What's that feeling like? Um, It was a weird, a weird feeling Um, because it's like back then when I went, it was, uh, it was pretty messed up. They, they gave you two weeks of R and R. Uh, but the first year of deployment, you had to pay for your own, your own stuff. So the military would just say, Hey, like, I think I just came back from doing a, a night raid or whatever, came back early morning. They just say, Hey, more get in here. Hey, you're going out for your two weeks. Right. So they bring you over some, you know, some fob and, you know, cause we stayed out, we had our own little fob, like in the city, you know, or we took over an old Iraqi, like agriculture college. Uh, so they brought me up to some fob and some finance guy is like, Oh, Hey, yeah, I've got your tickets. I think I paid three or $4,000, you know, cause wow. they're, cause they're just buying last minute tickets right there. Yeah. You gotta pay. For and it comes out of your pay. It comes out of Four your grand stuff. So you can go home and see your yeah. family. And I think at the time, I mean, married sergeant combat pay hazard pay, 
the whole nine yards, I was only making 1800 bucks every two weeks. Wow. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's a month's worth of pay basically to go home. Yeah. You're fighting uh, for free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it was a trip though. They just freaking, uh, they put me on a little, little C-130, flew me from, I think they flew me from Azul down to like the Baghdad area, then Baghdad right into Kuwait, got off a plane in Kuwait, uh, at the base in Kuwait. And then they're like, Hey, change into your civvies. So people don't know you're a soldier. It's like, Oh yeah. Me at 20, 21 year old white male with my freaking high and tight. At the Kuwaiti airport when the war's going, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know that I was in the service. Yeah, but it's just a trip. They they basically drop me off at the front of the freaking airport. Hey man, go catch your flight. And then so you're just literally like six hours before we're doing raids against against these people. Now you're sitting next to people that look similar. You know, it was a very uneasy, weird, like oh shit feeling. Um, Yeah, so flew home, came home. uh, You know, it was my wife's birthday, my brother's wedding. Went down to Vegas for the last couple of days, party with my best friend from the war too. Uh, we're still best friends this day, but he he was on leave at the same time. So we met up, went down to Vegas, partied, and then it was like, hey, turn around, go back. But it's weird because you're home and you're trying to enjoy yourself, but you're so like, you have this total guilt of I'm gone. What if something happens? What if I'm not there with my guys? What if I, you know, especially when you're a leader, it's very hard to, to be away from those, those guys in that situation because then you're just, I mean, I'm, every night just sitting there thinking, not sleeping, worried about what they're doing, worried about, you know, are they doing the right things? Are they, are they stacked up right going into a house? Those kind of things and the things that I would be there to correct them on or train them. And then I'm not there. So it was a, it's a weird thing, you know? Yeah. Then flew back and I, I took mine and the first three months of deployment, I went on like two weeks leave. So then I came back and had like a whole another nine months ago, which kind of sucked, but is what it is. When you get through the deployment, you come back to the U.S. Yep. How is, uh, and you're, did you end your service or did you continue? Yeah. On? Yeah. I got back. Uh, you know, I had my, my contract, you know, I got involuntary extended for the year. So I got back, my time was up and they basically, uh, were like, all right, well, uh, you know, they made a platoon called the stop loss platoon, which was all the guys in the company that had been stop loss. And they basically said, Hey, you guys got 90 days to, to clear the army and get your stuff turned in. And thanks for your service kind of thing. Right. So it was a weird, um, it was a hard transition. I came home and found out my wife had been having an affair while I was gone in Iraq along with, you know, a massive proportion of other guys in our unit. Um, you know, we're young, dumb kids and probably shouldn't have been married that young as it was anyways. But so it was like, found out my wife had been cheating and was devastated by that, especially because I was like my whole motivation the whole year to get home to her. Right. Um, found out she had, she had had an affair. And then on top of that it back then in the early days in the army, uh, it was kind of a real big stigma of not talking about the PTSD, not talking about, you know, you're a pussy. If you talked about it, you, you don't talk about it. Guys didn't want to talk about it because they want to get, Team that they couldn't go on the next deployment and right it just was one of those things guys didn't talk about but coming home i was 21 yeah i wasn't even 22 yeah i was 21 just going through first divorce found out my wife cheated just got home from the war went through all that stuff seen all that stuff done all that stuff and the army's just like all right well off care. you go off good you luck go. good yeah. luck and i try to tell it to people all the time it's like they they i correlate it to like uh like a metaphor i'd use it to say like you know, you take a pit bull, right? And you, you take this pit bull and you beat it every day and you starve it and you make it run on a treadmill and you make it a fighting dog and you take it in the ring and it's got 10 fights and it's killed 10 people or 10 other dogs now. And it's this savage fighting dog. And then all of a sudden one day grab that thing, go drop it off at a park with, you know, no de-escalation, no nothing. Just say, okay, well, now be a normal dog. Like go live life. Right. It's like, it's just not going to happen. So that transition for me was really hard coming home for a while. I think, uh, you know, you come back and come back home, came back to Everett and, you know, started working right away. But it still was just like this. You went from being a leader, from, you know, being in control of millions of dollars worth of equipment and, you know, nine or 10 guys' lives and doing all this high-speed stuff. 
until I got back and I was working for $10 an hour in a rebar fabrication yard, freaking carrying bundles of rebar from one spot to the other and you come back and you realize all these guys you went to school with and your friends, and also they're still kind of kids really. I mean, they're still kids and you feel like you're, you're this man now because you just went through this war and you did, you're a different person, but you came home and you're like, man, what did I really do it all for? Here I am thinking $10 an hour, freaking blessing my ass, right? Like, um, so it was a hard transition for me. I think I struggled for quite a few years when I came home and a lot of the guys turned to like drugs and alcohol. For me, it was never, it was never the drugs or alcohol. It was the adrenaline, uh, the adrenaline and just the anger and the survivor's guilt and all those things that are all real things to PTSD. But for me, I was just reckless. I just, I'd fight anybody anywhere. I was buying sport bikes, running from the cops every chance I got just 180 miles an hour everywhere I went on the bike. Didn't care. Really didn't care if I was going to die. Didn't care about any, you know, getting in trouble. Just didn't care about any of it because I really just had this like effort mentality after the war. Um, there took me quite a few years of that when finally I hit like an aha moment for me and that I finally stopped and was like, dude, I need help. You know, we need to go get some help and um, went into the VA and for, said, hey, I need help. And, and fortunately, I got very lucky. Um, I went into the VA and they make you see a, a counselor and they make you see a psychiatrist at the same time. I saw the counselor first and he was a younger guy who specialized in Iraq and Afghanistan vets. He was actually an Iraqi vet himself. Um, and so I wasn't going in talking to some old Dr. Phil Munkai kind of guy. You know, I was talking to somebody that was young that understood the stuff that we had been through and went through. And um, after the first meeting with him, he was like, hey man, listen, the VA, they, you know, they're gonna make you see a psychiatrist. He's like, that guy's gonna see you for however long, you know, maybe a half hour at most. And he's gonna try to prescribe you 10 or 11 different things. And he's like, I'm telling you, just, you don't need it, don't do it it's a mask to fixing what is going on. It's like, you, you don't need any of that. You just need to get to the root of these things. And we need to learn how to, you know, develop your brain to think things in a different way, make conscious decisions to, to, you know, to fight or not fight or do these things. Right. And so sure shit, I go in, see a psychiatrist. I, I think I was in that guy's office 10 minutes. Oh, so you've been in Iraq. Yep. Okay. You've seen people dead. Yep. Oh, been a, you know, IEDs. Yep. Fired your gun. Yep. Okay, well, here you go. This is a dream blocker. This is an anti-anxiety. This is this. And they try and try to give me a prescription for an entire box of pills. Uh, obviously, I didn't feel or take, but to me, I think that was probably the best thing that for me is not to do that, right? Because I watched so many of my other buddies that got on that stuff and it didn't help. It just massing out half the freaking side effects of that stuff is suicide, suicidal tendencies, suicidal thoughts, depression, all these things, right? So that was loss very of appetite. Yeah, yeah. Loss of all those things. Right. So I was very fortunate to have a counselor that pointed me in the right direction and was like, Hey, you, you don't need this. this. Isn't what you need to do. You need to, you know, just focus on your problems. And for me, it really was, it was a good, um, I think when you come from that mentality and the fighting and doing all that stuff, um, it's just a lot of learned behavior. And so it becomes an automatic, just automatic thought, right? And the military teaches, you know, if you're, if you're in a threat, you, you overcome with overwhelming force and superior fire superiority and those kind of things. And, um, so that's why, I, that's why I saw that, you know, if I'd be at a bar and if I, if I watched somebody, I, I was never a shit starter, like trying to fight people or just pick fights, that kind of guy, but I'd always assessing and watching. And, you know, I see some guys messing with some little dude or some younger guy picking on, I'd be the first person to go interject myself. Hey, what's up dudes. You guys want to fuck around somebody? You can fuck around with me, right? Like get involved. Mm -hmm. Um, and so my counselor was really trying to teach me like, Hey, those are great things. Like, you know, you, you went, you learned how to do hand to hand stuff and jujitsu and all this, and you know, how to fight and you're a big guy and all this thing. And it's great. Those are great tools to have in your bag, but I need to teach you when to consciously use those tools and not just as a subconscious, just freaking just go after. Cause back then I, it wasn't even a thought. Like I just, so there was a threat. I'd fight you. You want to fight? You want to talk shit? Okay. We can go over the, we can go outside or I'll jump over this table or, 
you know? And so it was like rewiring and teaching myself, like what my triggers were, how to avoid them, how to start making conscious decisions about, is this really worth it? What, and what could the side effects of that be? Could I get in trouble? Could I be arrested? Could I lose my job? Could I lose my license? Those kind of things. Right. And so it took me, uh, I went to counseling for two years straight, twice a week, uh, two years straight and really did a lot of work to try to figure out how to revamp my thought process and, and look at things in a different way. I think I lacked, um, in relationships after that, I think I lacked a lot of empathy because, you know, when you're in a relationship, somebody come home and, oh, I had the worst day and Sally at work said I looked tired today or I looked fat or what, you know, or look like I put on. And, you know, and so somebody's crying about in, in their relationship about that being their worst day. And to me, I'm thinking, well, is it your worst day? Did you watch your friends die? Did you watch? Did you, did you have to pick up little dead bodies of girls? Did you? Have, that's my thought process, right? But that's not, that's my reality, not theirs, right? And for years, I couldn't separate those two. I lacked empathy. Um, in relationships because my version of a worst day is worse than anything that, you know, that could happen to you at your day job here in America, you know. So it took me a long time to learn that like that's their reality and that that is, it was a bad day for whoever I was dating and not, you know, even though it doesn't compare to my worst day, it still makes it a bad day, right? So uh, I highly suggest the best. I'm very open about it and talk about counseling and getting help and doing those things. I think it's a very important thing. And outside of that, I think it's an important thing. I think people that struggle with anxiety, uh, depression, those kind of things. They should try to seek help and get help if they can. There's a lot of tools and resources to help people. And I think there's a big stigma around it still that it makes you weak or it makes you soft if you get help. And I just don't think that's the case. You know, I think the weaker thing to do is sit around and let your life deteriorate around you and refuse to get help because you think you're tough enough to handle it when you're really not. So, yep. When you're back in that stage, you're that you're coming back from the war and you're in that mindset of like, hey, I'll throw down with anyone. Anytime, anywhere. Let's go. Yeah. What would you tell police officers who are going to have to contact somebody like that? And how, how would you say, hey, this is this is how you deal with, you know, Matt Moore? Yeah, I think I actually, you know, I, I ended up in handcuffs a handful of times uh, ended up going to jail a couple of times for fighting and stuff like that. Right. Um, and I think there's I've seen both sides of them. I've seen some cops that have approached people in that position and they're just fucking assholes and they're dicks and they're aggressive and they're poking, they're prodding, they're trying to get a reaction on you. I've had an officer half my size in a situation where I actually wasn't involved with other people that was in my group and I was trying to de-escalate the situation and tell people, hey, just stop, just stop, stop arguing, stop fighting, you know? And he comes, gets right in my face and he's pointing his finger and you're a fucking douchebag, shut your effing mouth and go stand, you know, and just be way, way out of line and you know, and, and pushing, and I'm, you know, I turn around, hey, Nate, you can't tell you, don't talk to me like that, you know, go get fucked, like, you're not gonna, I didn't, I'm not doing anything wrong here, you're not gonna talk, oh, yeah, motherfucker, oh, yeah, you think you could take me, you think you could try it, motherfucker, try it, you know, coming at me in a way like that, as a cop, right, just super unprofessional, and it's getting, and in a, in a situation where, if he didn't have that badge on, he never in a million years would have talked to me like that, but he was pushing, because he was abusing the fact that he had that badge, and he, he could get away with talking to me like that and doing that because he, but he was trying to get a reaction on me. And in reality, if, if, if I would have at that point, I'd already done, been going to counseling. Had I not, he could have got that reaction on me. He might have got him. And then, then this guy who was not, I wasn't a bad guy. I was a single dad raising my child, had a good career at that time, was working hard doing those things. But you came at me in a way you were pushing to try to get a reaction out of me. And had I not worked on myself and gone to counseling, you would have got it. And then I, then I would be in cuffs in jail for assaulting a police officer, probably looking at years and years in prison, be a felon, all stuff. Because he his approach was egotistical and asshole and aggressive and all those things. Now I've had the other end of the spectrum where, you know, been in a fight, fight happened or whatever, cops show up, see my military IDs, you know, see that I'm a veteran on my license, treated me with respect, treated me with dignity, understood that shit happens, just wanted to hear my side of the story. 
and we're respectful every step of the way. So I feel like, um, you know, I've seen situations where these guys that they do lose their shit, that, that guys, you know, like they snap and it turns into something that's on. And I think in that kind of a situation as an officer, the best thing you do, I mean, obviously you have to, if there's still a threat going on, you have to protect yourself as an officer and get involved. But I think the bigger thing of it is to set, take a step back and take a breath before you, not to escalate, I guess, escalate in a situation that doesn't need to be escalated. And there's a lot of cops I think that do escalate when it's not, when it's not necessary. And I think that when you get to a veteran that's been back, you know, especially coming from a combat arms guy, you know, an infantry dude that's come back from the war and seen some stuff and been through some stuff. I think in that situation for you to come at him aggressively is, a, is just going to, it's just a recipe for disaster and could be with some guys. And so uh, I think it's totally avoidable if an officer, is, you know, can kind of take a step back, realize that, Hey, I'm dealing with somebody different. It's not a normal, this isn't a normal situation. I'm dealing with a veteran. I'm dealing, you know, whatever it is. And they might not know that you're a veteran, but I just saying in general, if they approach things in not such an aggressive, you know, not, not try to push or do it in an aggressive manner. Um, I guess uh, hopefully that helps. That makes sense. Makes sense. What I'm trying to say, you know, tell me about David. Oh man. Uh, David, David, uh, David Park. David Park is one of my best friends. Um, how'd you guys meet? We met at the gym. Uh, met at the gym. He's an, uh, an Asian kid, just jacked as all could be. Just this big, strong, muscular, charismatic, funny, goofy guy. Um, I remember when I first started, I had just started first working out when I met him at the gym, and he was just this animal. And I just like had this man crush from across the gym. I'm like, oh, this kid, he's like, just throwing 120 pound dumbbells around like it's nothing. You know, it's freaking deadlifting 700 pounds, freaking just, just a beast. Um, so kind of like always kind of just watched from afar. And one day I did, you know, a big heavy bench and he came by and, oh man, good job. And I was like, oh, he talked to me. Right? And, romance. Uh, yeah, romance, basically. <laughs> uh, so David and I, uh, we came pretty much instantly best friends. Um, he rode a Harley. I had a Harley. I had my Harley and and he had just got a Harley that was given to him by his stepdad. Uh, it was his stepdad's Harley. So he had a Harley and we just became instant best friends, man. Freaking rode our Harleys everywhere together. We lifted together every day. We're gym partners, worked out together every day. Um, just charismatic guy can get along with anybody and everybody just friends with everybody. I mean, and so we just created this big, huge gym family, um, and just had a couple of years and two, three years there where we were just best friends and freaking ha- having the time of our life. And, uh, two or three of our other buddies had bought motorcycles, you know, so they could start riding with us. And, uh, so we were all kind of like the, we call ourselves the wild hogs making fun of that movie. You know, we'd always make wild hogs forever, forever wild hogs. And, um, so we had a tradition every Sunday we would go meet at Buzz Inn at a steak, local steakhouse thing for breakfast and we'd get a Bloody Mary and a breakfast and then we'd go ride or whatever. And um, so we all met up on uh, July 22nd, 2018 and we all met up uh, for a ride and freaking had a had breakfast, had a Bloody Mary and then we took off and we were riding and uh, yeah, we were in a group of five of us. We uh, pulled up to the stoplight before we took off on this road. This, called hybrid which is basically like kind of whiny twisty back road that a lot of guys like to go on their motorcycles and um sitting over looked over each other big smiles on our face and gave each other knuckles and took off and i was uh the most experienced guy took off riding you know pretty quick took off ahead of them so i was far enough of david i didn't i i couldn't see him anymore he was far enough ahead of the three guys that were behind us the other three guys that were riding with us um that they couldn't see him so we're riding and I'm you know, a couple minutes ahead of everybody. And then I get a phone call. It shows up on the dash of my, on my Harley. And I, it's one of my buddies that's in the group. And I pull over and what's going on? And he calls. And I thought one of the new guys that just got their bike, maybe laid their bike down or whatever. And he, he called and said, Hey, do you need to get back? David just crashed. 
Uh, so I'm thinking, well, okay, well, how bad? You know, he's like, well, an ambulance is on the way. Um, so I turn around and go flying back there and come pulling up and David's bike is laying over in the ditch and he's just kind of laying in the fetal position, kind of like in the fetal position, laying next to the side of his bike. And, um, he's laying there and it didn't look that bad. I've seen other guys, I've been riding for 20 years and uh, I've seen other guys wreck their bikes. I've wrecked a, a bike doing, you know, doing a wheelie when I was younger, being stupid. And you know, there's bike pieces everywhere and the clothes are all shredded and it's just big mess. And so as I come pulling up, my buddies, like kind of one guy's down the ditch, one guy's on the phone, 911, a couple other cars have stopped at this point. And Dave was kind of laying down in that ditch. And so I run, jump down in the ditch with him and he's, uh, he's down in there. And I could tell just instantly he was like, that he was going to stop breathing. I could, he was taking really, really shallow breaths far apart. Uh, we saw his helmet on. He had a full face helmet, but it was a modular where you could lift the front screen of it up. Um, so he's laying there and I'm like, he's going to stop breathing. We need to get, we need to get his fucking helmet. We need to get his helmet off him now. Um, and 911 was like, no, keep his helmet on. I'm like, no, we need to get his helmet off. Um, and it was just a crazy, I'll get to the whole big, just so it was a crazy story. So there was this couple that had stopped there. Um, and this lady named Julie Peters, she just jumped in and she said, okay, I'll hold his neck, you know, while you get his helmet off of him. And there was another guy, uh, driving by named Tom and, and he was on a motorcycle too, him and his buddy. And they stopped. And fortunately, I think, you know, it was a very traumatic thing. And I think my friends that were with me, had never kind of experienced anything like that. So they're kind of frozen up, just kind of in shock, I think of what was going on. Right. Um, so we got helmets or David's helmet off and it, it was bad. I mean, his whole face was caved in and his teeth were gone and it was, it was pretty gnarly. It was bad. And he took his last breath and I knew like, I mean, I knew before we got his helmet off, he was going to stop breathing. So he stopped breathing. So, uh, we got in there and did CPR on him for 15 minutes, probably 15, 20 minutes, something like that. And luckily, you know, the guy Tom that stopped, he just hopped right in and said, Hey, I'll do compressions. And, and Julie held his head and I did mouth to mouth on him. And, we tried for you know 15 20 minutes until the the paramedics came the fire truck came they came they took over um they probably worked on another 10 or 15 tried to shock him fnm everything couldn't get him back and ended up calling it right there um so he died that morning with all of us and uh it was probably the second one you know probably one of the most devastating things i've ever been through i think it's different you know i've lost some, a lot of military friends uh, a lot of my friends that went back on a second deployment uh, the second deployment for my unit, uh, the entire squad that I had trained, pretty much the entire squad, four out of the six guys that I had trained, um, honored me on the first deployment, went back on the second deployment, and six of them all died in one IED. Um, wow. Yeah, on May 6th. So I lost a lot of friends. I buried a lot of friends. But that situation to me, I think it it was my first real close, close, close friend that wasn't from the military. You know, So it was like a brother to me. But I think the military, we have, it's just different. There's a different sense when you lose a military guy and they died in the war. There's a, there is a different, I mean, it's devastating. It's horrible, but it's also, it's weird. I don't know. We kind of know it's a little, I don't know. I guess at that point it's almost more, not expected, but it's not you as know the possibility. You know the possibility. It's not as unexpected. So when David, when David died and the way it went down, it was, it was very crushing to me. Um, what caused the accident? So, you know, it's, it's crazy. I'm not sure. So David was a very experienced writer. David and I had, ridden that same road a million a million times I mean, a ton of times together mm -hmm. uh, he's a very experienced rider and so where the crash happened was this big long left-hand sweeper corner now mind you i was far enough ahead i didn't see the other guys far enough behind they didn't see um but it was this big long left-hand sweeper corner and they never even tried to make the corner no no breaks no there was no skid mark skid there was no nothing just went straight into the ditch you know and he had big tall ape hangers and i believe that's what he had smashed his face on his on his gas tank when he went into that ditch mm. um so come to find out after the fact uh david had had i mean i already known about it but david had had a brain aneurysm at the gym like five years prior mm. so he had had a brain aneurysm went into a coma 
had a really bad, you know, bad experience for a couple months there. And then, you know, worked his way back and stuff. So I didn't know this, but he died on the morning, Sunday morning. But on Friday, he was working at Boeing and he was working in inside of a wing. And at that time, I guess on Friday night, when he climbed out a wing, he reached his, ripped his head backwards and hit his head on, on the wing, had a big knot on the back of his head. So the next day, he was at a friend of ours baby shower and had a huge knot on the back of his head and told somebody, you know, he'd whacked his head at work or whatever. And he was sitting there on a retaining wall up to their pond at this baby shower talking and just blocked out and fell back into the pond right into the water. And so the guys had to pull him out and get him out. Had I known that that had taken place, I never would have let him get on a bike the next morning and go riding with us, right? Um, so I wasn't aware that that had taken place. So what we think, and it's hard to tell because the uh, coroner did say, you know, they, that he did have brain bleed and all stuff. So what we believe happened was that he had already, he when he had hit his head, he had already started a brain bleed and had something going on in his brain at that time um, from his prior injury of his aneurysm before. And which is probably why he blacked out and passed out the way he did on Saturday. And then for us right now, Sunday. So I, I think that what we all took from it, we think this, you know, he was riding and as he was approaching that corner, he just blocked out and just went straight. I mean, cause he didn't even attempt to make the corner, didn't attempt to skid did nothing, just rode straight into it. So I think that that's kind of what probably took place, but hard to tell because there was so much damage from the crash that it's hard to pinpoint that's exactly but i like to take a little solace and thinking that that's why he already had a brain bleed going and probably was going to pass from that as it was anyways and at least it happened on a morning with his best friends and his tradition of breakfast and nice sunny morning a big smile on his face and happy and riding what you love to do and so yeah you still stay in contact with uh, tim and julie Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's crazy. Yeah. So Tim, so Julie, Julia and her husband have stopped there. Right. Um, and then the guy Tom had stopped. So this is weird. I don't know if you ever seen the movie crash with Terrence Howard and have, Sandra yeah. Bullock and all them. And, and it starts at this crash kind of reverses way back how they're all intertwined prior to this crash. Right. So it was this weird, crazy, like crazy term of events. Like, so after crash happened, Julia would stay there and she's the sweetest soul you'll ever meet in your life. Just this, beautiful kind sweet gentle lady she's you know probably 47 48 years old just just a kind soul so you know she's hugging all of us she's crying her husband's crying everybody's every everybody's crying everybody and the people that didn't even know david 20 minutes before this had happened right um so i caught her name and i caught tom's name you know the detective showed up and um they basically told us we had to leave which was so hard for me because when the military when somebody passes somebody stays with them from the time and they die till they're buried. Somebody's with that body, right? And yeah. the detectives on this were like, hey, now you guys got to go. But, you know, now we got to do our investigation. You can't stay here. And, like, we just wanted to stay. So I had to drive home. And it was a total mindfuck because my daughter, my my youngest daughter, her mom and I were, were together at the time. And she was pregnant. And we were having, she was, my daughter was due, like, a week later. So it was like, she's nine nine months pregnant. You know, we're just about to have a baby. Just lost, just lost Dave. Go home. And. So I had found through social media, I ended up finding uh, Julie and I ended up finding Tom, the guy that stopped at CPR and reached out to them. And I was like, Hey, you know, can you guys, you know, I appreciate everything you did and all the things became friends on social media and asked them, Hey, next Sunday, would you guys come with all of us for breakfast? Um, like we did tradition with David every Sunday, would you guys come out? I'd like to meet his friends and meet people um, and be able to tell, you know, so that of course they said, yes, of course they'd love to come. So they came and was able to introduce them to, some of David's friends and my friends and, you know, one of the buying breakfast and thank them for their efforts to try. And so we're sitting there and uh, my buddy Joe that was riding with us, he's sitting there and um, Tom, the guy that stopped and helped do CPR, he's sitting across from Joe and we're all talking and, oh, how old are you, Joe? And Joe, oh, I'm 41. Oh, really? Tom, oh, me too. Yeah. Oh, where are you from? Oh, 
the small town in California. I, I think it was Calexico or some small border town in California, right? Oh, I'm from this town. No fucking way. Me too. Really? You're 41? Yeah. When's your birthday? Oh, it's a lot. You know, May 31st. Oh, mine too. No fucking way. So they're born on the same day, same year, same hospital in the small town, border town in California, 41 years prior. Now, 41 years later. Reconnected. In, recon, inter, intersected at this crash, at Davis Crash, and, and they meet at this crash, right? So, so it was a total trip, right? Um, so then Julie's husband's sitting across from me, and he's looking at me, and we're talking. He's, Matt, where, where'd you go to school? I was like, oh, I'm to Cascade, but then I got a scholarship to go play football. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I was your math teacher. Um, I don't think so. I think I would remember you. No, no, I'm pretty sure I was your math teacher. What years were you there? So I said, oh, I've been 97, 98, 99. But yeah, I started teaching in 1997. I swear, I, th- I think I would have remembered you. I would have remembered you. I don't know. Maybe. I don't think so. So dinner's over, and they go home, and or breakfast's over. They go home. A couple hours later, I get a text from Julie, and it's a picture chart. So back then, her husband was her first quarter of teaching. Uh, he took pictures of each kid and then made a seating chart. And so he sends me this. He still had it. He went through all this stuff because it was his first quarter of teaching. and found some bin of his first quarter of teaching math. And 27 years prior to this accident, I was in his first – he was my first – you know, I was in his first class that he taught at math after he got out of college. And he sends me a seating chart. It's a picture of me, freaking, you know, 15 years old, little smile on my face at his seating chart. And so here, this guy, Julie and her husband, who I had this connection with from 27 years prior at the crash too, right? Um, and then David and I both had um, taken our, our bikes to the guy named John Moran, who owned a place called Hog Dog. And he helped build David's bike. And was David had this whole, he was doing ape hangers and pipes and whole nine yards. And so he knew David very well and he knew stuff. And John Moran, who built David's bike, was best friends with the couple who owned the property where David crashed on the corner. They crashed. And so then they told him, you know, we can put a mural there for him. We can do whatever. But it's just this whole thing. Everybody was all intertwined uh, in life prior. And to you David didn't crashing. even know it. And nobody even knew it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was crazy. So and then with that, you know, David had he was just a charismatic guy. He had all these different groups. You know, and he, he was Asian. So he had a whole group of his Asian friends and then gym friends and writing friends and all these different groups. Um, and so after he, all those different groups. So a lot of us had never met until he passed. So then when he passed, uh, you know, we all put together a celebration of life thing, kind of brought us all together. And uh, since then we've all, this big, huge group of us so have all become friends. And so it's really cool. Like this eclectic group of, you know, a bunch of white guys wearing the cowboy boots and Carhartt shirts and stuff. And then we go on, you know, like every year we do an annual ride for him or an annual trip for him somewhere. So the first year we go down to, to we rode all of our Harleys all the way down to San Diego to Mission Beach and a bunch of his other friends flew in and, we're all saying this Airbnb and we're all going out to celebrate at this brewery and this bar. And it's a bunch of six foot two, six foot three, 250, 275, 300 pound guys and their Harleys and their, and all their stuff, a bunch of military guy. And then a bunch of little Asian guys. And then just this mix, this collaboration of everybody and everybody kind of looking at us like, how does this group, how does this group work? Like, where did this, where did this come from? And we've all become very good friends. Um, a couple of them now have bought Harleys and they ride with us too. And, and uh, so as devastating as the entire situation was, there were some really good blessings from it too that came from from his tragedy. And it was kind of crazy that David, even in that, you know, after his life, after he passed, was still bringing people together and still creating, you know, bonds with people. So it was a really cool, it's been a cool experience on that side of things. Obviously, it was one of the hardest horrible. things I've gone through. Yeah, it was yeah. horrible, you know, one of the worst things I've seen uh, in my life, one of the worst things I've gone through. It's such a mind, mind fucking a way of, burying your best friend dealing with the emotions of that and what it just saw and what it went through and then like literally like 10 days later my daughter being born uh so it's like you're trying to be happy you know so then i have this guilt of that like trying to be happy and excited about her life excited that my baby's here 
trying to plan a funeral at the same time or trying to plan a celebration. It was like, like just dealing with all that. It was just like, a, it was a lot. So, but yeah, that's the story about David. <laughs> no, that's a cool story. At some point you go to work for Boeing. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and you're at Boeing and what are you doing? Uh, so when I got out of the army, like I said, I, I started a job doing, um, I started a job doing, uh, uh, construction. I was doing, working in a rebar fabrication yard, making 10 bucks an hour. Right now, the good thing that I learned from the military was I learned, um, a lot of hard work ethic. Right. And so the job was shit. I mean, it was a hor I, it was a horrible freaking job. I would be there four 30 in the morning, physically demanding. I was working with a bunch of ex cons and, and people that weren't showing up. And so after like three months of me showing up, you know, the people were like, I show up every day. I was working my butt off every day and I, I went to a driver didn't show up. They asked me if I could go do a delivery to a job site. I went out and did a delivery to a job site. I'll try to make a long story short, but did delivery to a job site guys out there. Hey, what are you doing working for those guys? You know, you don't seem like you're typical hardworking. Like how long have you been working? I'm like, Oh, this month, you know, three months. What are they paying you? 10 bucks an hour. Oh, I'll pay you 16. Come work for me. I want, you know, I need somebody to be a rigger for our crane. Come on, come work for me. I'll teach you. So I, you know, give my two weeks, go work for this guy making 16 bucks an hour. He's teaching me how to rig for cranes. I really don't know what I'm doing, but I'm figuring it out, hustling, working hard. And then um, probably three months into that, so a union rep, I didn't even know what the union was. I knew the, the tower crane operator was a union guy. Um, he came out and the union rep came out and saw me busting my ass and working and called that guy after, hey, it's pretty good rigging. He's like, yeah, it's good. So he comes over, hey, who are you? I'm like, oh, Matt Moore. I'm like, oh, are you in the union? I'm like, nope, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what it is. Well, what are they paying you an hour? I'm like, uh, like 16 bucks an hour. He's like, that's 32, whatever, 32, 35, start tomorrow sound. I'm like, uh, sounds like I got a new job. So I went and worked for them. And then, um, I went to the union. They brought me in as a journeyman. I didn't go through an apprentice program or nothing. What came right into the boom was going at the time. That was like 2005, six boom was going really big in Seattle, Bellevue area. So a lot of cranes, a lot of work. Uh, and I just freaking started grinding where I'd call, I'd call up to the operator during lunch and we get a half hour lunch and say, Hey, can I run up there? Can I just practice? Can I figure that crane out? And I'm kind of just run it. So he'd let me run every day. I'd go up there for a half hour and run the crane. Then I started asking the owner of the company, Hey, can I come in on Saturday? Uh, bring a friend out. You know, my brother was a laborer in the union and said, Hey, I'll bring my brother. I won't pick anything up and just run around. I just want to just drop chains on things. Just practice. So I kept dropping chains on things, learning how to run that crane, uh, learn how to run that crane. And then one day the operator, no call, no showed. And they were like, Hey man, can you freaking Think you could run that thing for the day and so i went and ran the crane for the day and freaking came down and said like, okay you can say so you're gonna be our crane operator now right so i started working with that company uh, as a crane operator and a rigger for them for like four or five years and then 2010 uh commercial construction kind of took a dive after the recession out here so i switched over went to boeing in 2010 as a crane operator for boeing um went there it was on graveyard it's a, it's a weird thing i took a huge pay cut going from the operating unit to there I had to go there Boeing has a six-year progression step so i had to go back down Get 25 bucks an hour, work my way up to get back up to 45, 46 bucks an hour, whatever. Um, went there and I just freaking hated it. I just felt I was good. I was a good crane operator. I could run a crane. I could do, I could do the job. Um, you know, it was good benefits, good pay. I one of the top, one of the top paying jobs in the factory. And I just freaking hated it. And, but I was, you know, I was a single father and they, and you, sometimes you get stuck in things and you got to pay bills. You got to provide. You got to provide, right? Yeah. So I was providing and stuff, but I just always felt like, this just wasn't for me. It's just not what I should be doing. And I, but, and I just hated, I hated the environment. It just walking into the same factory every day, doing the same stuff. And I'd been there. So I, I was there from 2010 to 2020. Um, and I just freaking just didn't like it and just wanted something more for myself. And my daughter's mom was in real estate. She worked new construction. So it was a little different than being a resale, uh, than being a, a realtor that sells new and used homes. 
um, and does resale. But so she was like, yeah, I think you should do it. You should make that. You should make a change. You're unhappy. You don't like it. I think you'd be good at it. Um, I think you should go for it. So in 2020, March of 2020, I, again, on my 10 year anniversary, I put in my notice that I was quitting and uh, I quit and went into real estate in 2020. And you got a ton of awards out of it. Yeah. What yeah. Did, what, what, what was some of the awards you racked up that year? Uh, it's my first year. I didn't, I only was there for nine months. So I finished my first year as the top producer for the brokerage, uh, as well as got rookie of the year. Uh, second year, I went to another brokerage um, and it was the number two guy there and one of the, the second top sales guy for the whole company there. Uh, last year, uh, I went to John Scott, which is a big local company, one of the bigger ones, Somers County. Uh, and was a top one of the top producers in the top 10 or 12 out of 80 agents or whatever and got a president's elite award and uh, so it's been good it's worked out really good for me uh, the transition has been good it's one of the most fulfilling jobs I've ever had uh, rewarding I'm in business for myself um, it's time I love me it's a hustle it's a grind you have to work it's not gonna nothing's gonna be handed to you but it has when I first left Boeing, my whole idea was if I could just make what I made at Boeing, you know, I was making, you know, hundred grand a year or whatever. I was like, if I can make that and, but be in business for myself, I'd be very, I'd be happy. Like mm-hmm. just to be my own, have my own time, my own, to me, the biggest thing of all, it wasn't even about the money. I just wanted the freedom to be more time with my kids, more time with my family, more time, you know, hunting and doing the things that I was passionate about, which I just didn't have the time to do when I was working there. Um, so my whole goal is if I could just make that. And so my first year, I well surpassed, I surpassed that. My second and third year, well, well, well surpassed what I could have ever made at Boeing, right? Um, but with that, I also had, I mean, first time I've ever been able to take off the whole 14 days for hunting every year. And I bought, I bought a cabin in Eastern Washington, I bought property. And um, now it's like, like that's my freaking, my zen is to go over there with all my buddies and hunt and do all the stuff. And so the money side of it aside, just the freedom to, you know, I can be with my daughter. I can take her to school every day. I can pick her up. I can go to all her school events. I can work around my schedule. I can go to my cabin. I can spend the time and I'm doing it all on my own. And if anything, real estate taught me from being in the industry and looking at all the different ways people can make money. And there's just so many ways to be successful and be in your business for yourself. You know, my, my carpet cleaning guy runs a carpet cleaning business by himself and he's super successful and super busy. My, my house cleaner got into business for herself and she just cleans for all these agents and cleans for her customers and makes a bunch of money. The girls that stage my homes just make astronomical amounts of money and they're in business for themselves. You know, window washing guys, the, the home appraisers, the home inspector. I mean, just so many ways to, to make money and be and it's not just about the money but make money but but to be into business for yourself and not be working for somebody else and making their dreams come true uh where you can make your dreams come true right um and get that financial freedom but also just get that freedom with your family and not to be stuck to a nine to five and you know there's nothing wrong with a nine to five grind i think there's a lot of people that works for them and that's a good for them and boeing i I don't really have a lot of bad things to say i think it's there's a lot of people that love boeing their 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 time at boeing their experience at boeing for me it wasn't that and i that's great if that's the way you're at and you're happy and you're comfortable with that but i think if you're in a position where you're not happy or you're not comfortable with where you are right now and you want to make a change you have to bet on yourself and that was my whole thing when i left so many people you're going to see there's more people rooting against you Mm -hmm. than rooting for you more people want to see you fail then we'll see. To me, which is great. That was my motivation, right? When I was leaving, there were so many guys that talk shit. Oh, you're going to leave. You just got 10 years. You just got to day shift. You got a great job. You're so stupid. The economy's going to change. This, you know, you're just so many guys that talk shit and they just want to see you fail. And a lot of those guys, that's just them projecting their own insecurities. Of mm-hmm. They never made that move. They couldn't, they, they didn't make that decision to try that themselves. Right. Uh, for me, it was never, I was never really worried about it. My thing was, 
I was betting on myself, but I took the take of, if I make this jump and I do this right now and I'm successful at it, like it can change my entire life. And, and if I go and I do it and I try for a year and it doesn't work and I don't make it and I can't make it and, and real estate doesn't work out for me, what did I lose? I can go back to cranes. I've been running cranes for 15 years. I can always, I'll, I can find a crane to go run. I could go back to it. Right. But I didn't want to be that guy that was 50, 60 years old, turn around going, I wonder what would have happened if I would have tried real estate. I wonder what would have happened if I, if I would have made that leap. Right. If I had done something else. And so I just, I try to sell that story to people like just bet on yourself. If you think, and obviously you got to kind of set yourself up in a way, you got a little bit of a bubble to try to make that transition, you know, cause it's not going to be, you're not going to walk right in and just start making a bunch of money. Right. But I was going to ask you that. What do you attribute your success to you coming in and getting, you know, agent of the year and getting all these awards and, and being the top producer for your brokerage and within the County? Yeah. You know, for me, I think, um, the biggest thing for me is I was authentic to who I was, right? I'm a very blue collar guy. I got hand tattoos and tattoos all over. I drive a truck and a Harley and I'm a hunter. And, you know, I grew up in this area and I tried to just stay fully authentic to who I was and not try to go. I'm not trying to go put on a suit and tie and go down into the richer neighborhoods and pretend that that's who I am. And, and that's my people. And, you know, and that's great. There's agents that, that they grew up. That's their that's their target audience for me. I wanted to stay very authentic to who I was. Um, almost all of my businesses referral is referral based. Um, but I think too, I'll do things that other agents won't do. Uh, I will, cause I grew up half the hustle. I grew up having to half to make it work for myself and half the right. So I'm the type of agent will, I will come help, you know, we've got to get stuff done. I'll come help you hang doors. I'll help you paint. I'll help you pressure wash. I'll come help you clean. I've got resources. I know everybody. And I think for me, I've always said like, it's about the mission, not the commission. I make it authentically about like, how can I help you? How can I be a resource? And it's not just about trying to get a sale, trying to get money from somebody or trying to, you know, trying to get those things. And so I think for me, I've really targeted it on like, the veteran community, people I worked with at Boeing, people I grew up with around in the area, like, and just trying to engulf in, in soak up every bit of knowledge I can about the lending side of things and what the rates are doing and, and have the resources to help people and do those things, but also like be a grinder, be a hustler, think outside the box, do things that other people won't do. And like last year, the beginning of the year, I, I was like, you know, people do mailers, right? They, they get a little mailer with their picture on it and some little quote and, and then they mail it out to 300 people. And that might work for some people. I feel like the majority of people are going to take something like that and get it in the mail and toss it in the trash. That's what I do, right? So I was like, what can I do different? So I went and bought uh, $40 worth of, or $200 worth of $5 Starbucks gift cards, right? So I got 40 of them. I wrote 40 handwritten notes and said, dear neighbor, please have a coffee on me. Venti or small. If you're thinking of selling, give me a call. Put that little Starbucks card, my business card in there, and I went and walked my neighbor and dropped 40 off in the, in downtown Snohomish area where I live, right? Because um, my thought process there was, one, you're going to open this thing up and get the Starbucks card, right? You're going to look. You're not going to throw the Starbucks card away. You might throw my business card away. You might throw my note away, but you're not going to throw away that Starbucks card. So you're going to think about me there. Well, that's not cool. I'll get the Starbucks card. Then you're going to go use it. When you go use it, you're going to think of me again and use it, right? So from that one mailer or from those $200 worth of gift cards, I ended up getting you know, about a month later, somebody called me and then that snowballed into five sales from those $200 service cards. So I made well, well over a hundred thousand commission. It was my return on that $200 worth of gift cards. Right. So I was like, just trying to think outside the box. What can I do that different people aren't doing? Um, I bought a pressure washer. It's probably the best investment I could have made as a real estate agent. I go out and I help people pressure wash their driveway, get stuff, you know, help clean up their properties or whatever before we list them to sell. 
But it's not just about helping them. It's also like the exposure I get from, right? Because I can go out and I'll make a short little clip video of me. Hey, guys out here freaking fresh washing this driveway. Like, you know, find you an agent. go above and beyond, right? And yeah, I'll a lot get, of pressure washers. Yeah. A lot of agents won't pressure washers. A lot washers. of pressure agents are going to do that. So for that $300 pressure washer I bought, you know, one, I'm, I'm adding value uh, when I go to these clients because, hey, I'm willing to help you and I'll help and do this stuff, right? Two, then I show up and they're like, dang, the guy actually showed up and he's doing it. Like, he, he's a hustler. But the most value I get out of it is what I can put it on social media and people on social media will look at that and go, so I'll share a short video like that or a short clip like that to my social media. And then I'll get all these comments. Oh my God, dude, I wish my agent would help out. Like, Oh, my agent didn't do nothing. Oh, my agent. They'll get people that will share it. I'll get, so I'm getting 50, 60 comments and 20 shares and people, Hey, use my buddy, Matt Moore. Look at, he goes above and beyond. Look at this guy. He has hustles. And so, um, so it's like making the things like that that other people won't do. Um, but I think truly genuinely the biggest success for me is honestly just, being a good person and freaking making this connection. I've got a lot of really, um, really deep rooted relationships and friendships that I've had for years and years. And I tell people, I'm like, you could know all the sales gimmicks in the world. You could watch all the YouTube videos. You can do all that stuff. Um, you could be the smartest guy. You could pass the tests on everything. You could be all those things. Uh, if you don't know how to connect with people and you don't know how to make connections with people and have that presence with people, you're not going to be successful in this industry. And for me, prior to even being in the military, I've always, I think, or prior to being a real estate agent, um, I've always prided myself on my friendships and my loyalty and making sure that I'm maintaining my friendships and stuff. And I, you know, so I'm the kind of guy, although you, you've seen it, you live in Texas, but how often, every couple of weeks we're checking in on each other. Hey, how you doing, man? Just checking in on it. Hey, I'll tell you I love you. Hey, what are, you know, yeah. and maintaining our friendships. And a lot of people don't do that. They don't put in the effort to maintain their friendships. So I've got a very, very, very huge, huge group of friends that are all very core group of friends to me, but my relationships go back 10, 12, 15, 20 years, right? So I've, I've built this trust with these people and these relationships for 20 years. So now once they see me make that transition and go into real estate, they, who they, they're going to go to me because they trust me that I've got these friendships with them. They know my character. They know who I am as a person. And so that snowballs into, you know, I get one sale, you know, from a friend and then, Hey, you did great. You know, we want to use you because you're our friend and we're so great and we love you. And then I use them. And then, Oh, well now my friends want to use you too. Cause you did a great job selling our house. And it just kind of snowballs. Like last year I probably had three or four sales from high school, from people that I've been friends with through social media um, but we're not even really, we don't hang out in real life that often, or we've just maintained our friendship through social media, but then them seeing my work and seeing my grind and then, Hey man, like you just look at your busting your butt. Hey, you know, we're looking to sell. Can you do this? Or, you know, people that call and they have a question and there's just being a resource for them. Right. And then all of a sudden, because I was that resource for them, you know, I maybe had somebody that's, Hey, can you run comps for us? You know, and I run comps for them and we're thinking about selling run comps, give them comps, give them all the information, give them everything. Okay. Now's not the time. Well, then all of a sudden a year later, they're like, well, Hey, can you run comps again? We're ready. Right. It's because I was a resource from a year prior. And now all of a sudden a year later, um, they're using me. Right. So I think the biggest thing I tell people is like maintain your friendships, invest in your relationships. Like people are like, Oh, I've got a thousand dollars for a marketing budget for the next couple of months. What would you do? I'm like, what do I do? I'd freaking go invest in my, myself and my friends. I'd go host an event. You know, I host a veteran event once a month where I try to bring veterans together We've never made it about, you've been to a couple of them, but yep. it's never been about real estate. I don't host a veteran event where you come in and there's a board about real estate. We're talking about, well, it's not that. It's a, I, I take it as an opportunity to bring vets together, bring our friends, you know, bring, bring your friends that are vets, bring vets. I'll, we'll pay, I'll pay the tab, we'll pay for drinks, pay for food, just have a good time. It's an opportunity for us, the vets to get together, share stories, share our war stories, make jokes, poke fun at each other, do whatever. 
And when the first few, you know, three, four months, it's, it was, you know, three or four people. And then it snowballed in 15 and 16. And then all of a sudden now, you know, eight months in, I'm getting a sale from it. Oh, now another sale from it. Right. And so, but I never did that with it. It wasn't just the intention of trying to get sales, like an opportunity to bring people together. And I think that's the biggest investment you can make is, is if you're trying to look at way to you to invest, invest in your friends, invest in yourself and not just think that you can buy, buy a lead or you can buy, you know, sales gimmick stuff. It's like you have to nurture friendships and nurture relationships to be successful in this industry. So how can people reach you? Uh, so you can reach me at, on Facebook at center Matt Moore, or you can check out my hashtag. It's Matt sells more. Uh, or you can reach me at Matt Moore at John L Scott.com or you can call me 425-231-9186. Yeah. No, you can find me on social media. It's Matt Moore friends with you, friends with Spencer, uh, like I said, you can look at my hashtags or if you go on Instagram, it's infantry underscore Matt. So infantry Matt. Um, yeah. Feel free to reach out if you're in the area and you're looking for help with, uh, with selling or buying. Brother, I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. You, uh, you're somebody that I have a lot of respect for. You got a lot of grit in the stuff that you've gone through and worked through. And uh, I think a lot of people, when they hit hard times, whatever you when you talked about empathy, yeah. a lot of people, the hardest time is that their coffee was made wrong yeah. for the day yeah. and it ruins their day yeah. and ruins their week. And, you know, and they, these little small things that a lot of people, you know, they, they, a lot of people just haven't experienced hardship. Yeah. Um, and in a way, good for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, when they do, um, we need people to look at yeah. as an example of it's not that bad yeah and if they can get through it and they can be positive and bet on themselves yeah you can too yeah so that's what i take away from you brother and i appreciate you sharing appreciate and it, opening man. up and telling your some of the hard stuff you've been through well, i appreciate it, man. a lot of respect well thank you all right bud i man. thank cool. you much thanks that's all for today's episode I'm your host, Spencer Robinson. Thank you for listening to Distinguished Grit.